Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more. And listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Dawn Bridges, who's had a whole career in publicity, mostly corporate publicity. Dawn? Uh, I've had a wonderful time in the traditional music industry, in the new music industry, um, tech companies, Time Inc., um, 12 oh. years at Time Warner. Okay, you covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Why publicity? I didn't know what else I wanted to do, and I thought about going to law school like everyone else who graduates went, with a liberal – I, I went to law what, you, what, you, uh, what was your degree in? Uh, communications okay, with a minor in psychology. Where? UCLA. Right. Okay, so uh, you you graduated from college, and this was like late seventies, early eighties, early eighty three. Yeah, oh, eighty three, and you had no idea what you wanted to do. Yeah, well, I knew I always liked music. I actually had an internship uh, at A and M Records. In whoa, 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 a little bit slower. Oh. Why did you get an internship at A and M Records? Well, one of the great things about going to school at UCLA is there are internships in almost any entertainment company. I mean, just pick it. You want to be in TV? You want to be in? Oh, movies? really? Yeah. I mean, because I grew up in the era. I'm a little bit older than you, like ten years older or close to it. And you couldn't even get a job at a record store, like Tower Records. It was so hard. So you're going to UCLA. If you say, I want an internship at a record label, is just that easy? Even better, you got credit for it. <laughs> okay, so you're working <laughs> there. Uh, Gil is there. Gil Friesen's um, running it. Yeah, Gil would have been there. Mike Gormley was okay, the yeah, department yeah. head. Um, Mike Gormley was the department? I didn't know that. And uh, I remember um, the Police album. I mean, not the – and remember the show at the Whiskey where everyone kind of had the bright blonde hair? Go back and Google it. It's, oh, no, it that's a the, very, the very first Police yeah. album. Don't stand yeah. so close. No. Was that on that album? Certainly Roxanne. Yeah. Roxanne okay. was, yeah. So what did you do at A&M? Um, well, those were the days where you actually mailed out um, uh, records to journalists, so I stuffed a lot of envelopes. Um, you know, I checked people in at shows. I did all the things that 
aspiring people do. Okay, and that was how long a tenure? I guess about six months. Okay, good good experience, bad experience? Interesting. I mean, it felt very glamorous at the time. You know, here you are in the old Charlie Chaplin lot. Um, yeah, it was great. Okay, and after, did they give you the time of day? Yeah, no, I thought people were very nice and polite. When they had extra tickets to things, they would invite me to shows. So, And it actually served me well later on when I had interns in departments that, that I managed. You know, be nice to your interns. Okay, and now the interns have to get paid, otherwise... Yes, uh, they do. Yep. Um, okay, you're at UCLA. How do you get to A&M? Um, well, I, I don't did, know. Did you take I, the bus or did you have a car? I didn't have a car my first couple of years. So I literally, I was a tour guide at the LA Times my sophomore year. So I literally got on the Wilshire bus and <laughs> went from Westwood downtown to the LA Times. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You were a tour guide, you said? Yeah, they used to give tours at the LA Times. What would you see? Um, well, it, to show you when it was, um, the big finale was ending in the printing presses. <laughs> it's funny. When I was in grade school, we went once to the Bridgeport Post of Connecticut. I remember uh -huh. that was the era of what they yeah. said. You know, was it hot type where each yeah. letter came down? Yeah, no, they, you did all that. And, of course, the L.A. Times had so much history, you know, that I wasn't aware of before I was down there. And I can't remember a whole lot except the right. Chandlers were a big deal right. and water and um, – and it paid extremely – I don't remember exactly what I got paid, but it paid two or three times what minimum wage was. So That was you know, a lot of money. It was a okay, lot of money. Okay, how did you get that gig? I, you know, I wish I had a better memory for it. Um, I'm not sure I do. Okay, are you – I mean, but now we hear about the internship. We hear about the job, mm -hmm. the LA Times. So you sound somewhat entrepreneurial. Would that be accurate? I guess I would say I was always a self-starter. And, okay. and I had a good sense of perseverance. Um, and I got a much thicker skin as I got older. You know, you have to be comfortable being rejected or having people say no and get back up again. Okay. So you, you had that experience. You graduate from UCLA and? Uh, well, I, in the summer, I grew up in Chicago. In the summer, I would go back and there was a big music festival called Chicago Fest. And I worked, you know, first as a receptionist. Then they told me, if you learn how to type, you can come back and be the entertainment director's kind of assistant and deal with all the contracts. And that was super glamorous. I mean, I remember 100,000 people showing up for Journey. I remember the Blues Brothers playing, you know, right on Navy Pier, on the water. And through there, I met a lot of agents or agents' assistants. And through one of them, I was introduced to someone at um, Salter's Roskin Friedman. Which is a big uh, PR agency at this point larry salter's son is still a pr person um lee salter's son larry that, salter's that's yeah. what i meant yeah. to say <laughs> larry's gonna be angry with me uh yeah but that was one of the along with rogers and cowan that was probably right. the biggest entertainment pr firm and again i was hired as a secretary assistant whoa, 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 a little bit slower so okay. you learn them as you found out about them as a result of chicago fest yes how did you literally get a job there i well, again, um, PR firms are very low margin, and they don't pay very much, particularly wait, 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 entry wait, 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 Just oh, for my okay. audience may not be as sophisticated as you are, <laughs> low margin in what way? Um, well, there's no way to do scale. It's a one-on-one. -on -one. So it's not like you, as an account executive, can have 100 clients because you could not service 100 clients. Um, and And they were always looking for people to do more work. They so they were looking for more bodies yes, to yes, raise the gross. Yes. Okay. And um, 
I was hired as an assistant. Whoa, 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 whoa. You were doing, you were in Chicago, okay? In the summers. In and the I summers. I would come back to UCLA. Okay, so this was a gig with uh, Salters et al. after you graduated. Yes. Okay, had you in the back of your mind when you were meeting these people at Chicago Fest, you say, oh, I'm going to use this to get a job? Uh, well, I knew I wanted to stay in L.A. at that point. Um, so to the degree that any of the relationships I built there were helpful, um, which they turned out to be. I mean, I, I knew Bob, I met Bobby Brooks then at ICM. Um, uh, I forget who the William Morris agent was. I mean, those were, I guess, the two big ones that had at least. Well, I guess I'm trying to get into your personality. Mm-hmm. Were you basically saying, okay, I know this person. Let me ring them. Mm-hmm. Let me work it. Let me see what I can make of myself. Or were you just sitting there and all of a sudden you got a phone call? Hey, you know, we met you and this, you'd be good at our office. Certainly not the latter. I'm not sure I was as organized for the former, but I was pretty good at figuring out at least target companies. And and again, I figured out pretty early that a lot of them um, needed young people who were basically willing to do anything at any hour. Okay, so you basically called up the Salter's operation and said, I want to work. I was introduced, I think, by a junior William Morris agent to not to lead to someone else. Um, okay, so you did not know Salters at all from Chicago Fest. Not at all. Okay, so you're introduced. You go for a meeting. What happens? Um, well, Lee had an office that I'm not sure he ever had filing cabinets. You know, there was the Barbara pile, the Frank pile. He was a great character, um, and it was basically, "Can you write? Do you understand what a column item is?" Um, you start next Monday. Uh, and again, I was hired as an assistant, and about three account executives quit in the first month. And it was like, you, can you be polite? Can you write? Can you figure out what makes a good story? And when you do events, can you get people to pose for photos? <laughs> and it was learn by doing. I mean, okay. there's no school. <laughs> okay. How much were you getting paid? I don't remember. Not very much. Enough to pay your rent and live a life? Well. Or your parents I, had to help you out? No. My parents, I, I mean, my parents paid tuition um but tuition at ucla at that point was not a whole lot of money uh i always was responsible no i i i was self-sufficient i did live in santa monica in a rent control apartment so i had very little you know housing cost at that point okay so what were some of the first things you did uh well i remember following lee around um to barbara streisand events i think that was Maybe the Broadway album. I mean, I didn't deal with her directly, but someone always needed helpers, you know, carrying the coat or, you know, holding the photographers here. And that was also when she did her um, performance, when she hadn't performed for a long time at her house in Malibu for um, the Democratic Party or something. I don't remember specifically what the cause was. And that, of course, was so fascinating just to see this sort of legendary person and how an event like that came together. There were a lot of um, there were a lot of movie premieres which need a lot of bodies. People who worked the red carpet, people you know to ask stars if they would come talk to Entertainment Tonight, people to pose photos. Um, they had a big theater practice, which I, I knew nothing about theater, and most of it was centered in New York. Um, but I was given the Carol Channing account, um, which was just a hoot. She was you know she was lovely. Um, I worked with Morris Day. Um, it was a very uh, David Copperfield. I, I okay, did a bunch okay. of Las Vegas acts. Oh, okay. So, were you basically assigned, and you had to plug 
wires into holes or did you have to create the opportunities? The latter. How'd you, just, how'd you learn how to do that? Well, I've always been a voracious consumer of media. Um, I mean, I always read newspapers and a bunch of magazines. So I guess I understood what kind of thing they would cover by just, you know, years of reading it. Um, and again, some of it, you know, you can pitch 10 things and you'll get nine no's. You got to just get back up and do the last okay. one. Okay. But you would literally say, okay, I want to be in the LA Times. Let me look who the names are. Let me ring them. Um, or let's figure out, are we best off in the calendar section? Are we best off in, you know, the Sunday magazine? You also need to not just Okay, out, let's yeah. assume we have a better plan. Mm-hmm. You would literally call out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And what would you say? Um, well, you have to figure out what the pitch is, right? What, what differentiates your artist from anyone else in that category that makes it interesting enough for the journalists to want to cover it. And that's kind of your job to sort of sort through that. I mean, there's a lot of singers, you know, there's a lot of actors. And why should someone care about the one that you're representing? So how'd you do it? Give me an example. Well, you talk to the, um, you talk to the artist a lot. And you try to figure out, again, what's different from this, I don't know, country artist and any other country artist? Was it where they grew up? Uh, what songs they write? Um, uh, their background, um, and okay. To- so now you know what you're pitching. Uh-huh. You know the artist very well. Mm-hmm. You're a newbie. No one knows who you are. Mm-hmm. So you connect. In that time, it was by phone. Mm-hmm. You connect with someone who controls as a writer at a media mm-hmm. outlet. Did they give you the time of day? Some did. Some. I mean, some of the bigger ones were the nicest ones. I mean, I didn't deal with Bob Hilburn a lot, but I remember he was completely charming and lovely. Um, and other ones didn't. Uh, again, I, I guess I had a pretty thick skin because it, it didn't stick with me if people just hung up or not interested or whatever. Okay, on to the next one. So you could literally say, I'm going to call 20 people, and if one says yes, doesn't bother It's me. a winner. <laughs> Is that your personality at large? You re- Rejection rolls off you? Oh, I never really thought about it that way. I. I guess I'm a realist, and I realize that, um, you know, no one bats 100% um, in this kind of role. So if I'm going to do this, or for as long as I'm doing it, I better be comfortable with what the rules of the road are. So how long do you work with Salters? Four or five years. Okay. At the end of the tenure, what does your job look like? Um, I was a senior account executive. And what does that mean as opposed to what you started out? um, I probably had better accounts. I had junior people, even if they didn't. I mean, there was not a formal org chart, uh, you know, so it's not like I could say these three people reported to me. But I had, you know, people that were junior that I could have help on on accounts. Um, Having afterwards worked in corporate life – it was a pretty loose organization, kind of all out of Lee's head and, and, and feeling, but I didn't know any different then. I mean, that was just... How much pressure was there? Uh, I think that there was a fair amount of pressure, um, at least that I felt on myself. Um, uh, but I've felt pressure at different jobs. And different well, I mean, I'm, not, I'm just asking because for me, not the top of job for me. Mm-hmm. I can't handle that much rejection. Mm-hmm. And let's use the example of a record promo person. 
You know, they're going to get the ads and they mm-hmm. feel a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. If they don't get them, however well, mm-hmm. hard they're working, their boss is going to beat them up. So it was the type of thing where you say, well, you know, we're working this thing. you mm-hmm. got to get a couple of newspapers or you got to get the person on TV. And did you feel pressure? Well, I really have to make this happen. Lee was a big believer in column items. And with that Carol Channing pile, he would pull out an old column item and say, just freshen this up, Don, and see if Liz Smith will use it. So he actually gave you a certain amount of instruction. Oh, yeah. And he gave great guidance. PR people should never be in the photo. Uh, you want your client post on the left side. Why is that? Because when you read the thing, you know, you're uh, They're left the first right. name. Yes. They're the first name that people read. And not everyone reads all the names. Um no, it was it. Okay, so four or five years go by. How does it end with Lee? Uh, well, I, I had a few music accounts, and Polygram was looking for someone to head their artist publicity department in New York. My father lived in New York and had since I was a teenager, and I always knew I wanted to be in New York at some point. You said your father or both parents? No, my father. Okay. Um, and uh, and they offered to bring me to New York. Um and again, I knew about music. I didn't know sort of about label life. Right. And, and, um, and I'd never managed a department, even though there was so much money coming in at that point that, you know, making budgets um, uh, was not what it ended up being um, later. And I, um, yeah, I mean, Polygram, as you remember, there were six majors at that point. We're, you know, 1980. 19- 90 now. Um, so this is just after when Polygram is on an acquisition spree. They bought A&M. They bought Island. They were owned by Philips, the Dutch electronics company. And to fund those acquisitions, they floated 20% of the company on the New York Stock Exchange. <clears throat> so they were the first pure play music group. I knew nothing about IPOs or anything like that at that point. That got them, you know, the billion dollars that paid for A&M and Island. They acquired right before I came in. Subsequently, they acquired Motown a year or so later, and then another year later, uh, half of Def Jam. Um, And it was a lot of sort of integration, and um, Polygram was um, traditionally, on a global level, the biggest of the six companies. Right, they were big overseas. But the smallest in in the U.S. Um, But they had, you know, a handful of big stars, um, and, and yeah. Okay, so, you're brought in as the department head. Yes. Uh, are some of the people working there feel that they should have had your job because they've been working there for a while? Yeah, at least one did. Yeah. And what happened there? Um, uh, she stayed for a year or so. I mean, I thought, okay, you okay. know, I, I, I didn't have the incentive to get rid of her. I felt like I no, needed to. Usually that to, person quits. Yeah. But in any yeah. event, um, did you feel – I mean, you've been working in the trenches for four mm-hmm. or five years, but you hadn't worked at a label. Mm-hmm. Did you feel a little intimidated that you were going to be managing the department? Um, I think less about managing the department, more in trying to figure out just the mechanics of how a label worked, the various departments, um, how something comes through the system from recording the record to how much time you need for the setup to the other departments, the marketing, promotion, sales department. Okay, so Polygram was an overall umbrella, and they had a lot of labels. You were working in New York. What was your responsibility? But in the beginning when I was hired, A&M and Island weren't integrated yet, so they were still run standalone. Um, I was the old Polygram, so Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, Tears Mer- for Fears. Mercury. Jo- yeah. Well, it, it, then they split it up. After I got, they split it up between 
Mercury and they created the, something called the Polygram Label Group, which right. had London and, right. and I think some of the island repertoire um, going through. And, and then, yes, I had the Mercury artists. And I think. So you were literally the record company publicity head. I was. And, then, and so how much did you still have to do the work that you did at Lee Salters as opposed to farming it out to your people? Uh, well, I remember um, my boss saying, you've got to deal with Bon Jovi because he's the biggest artist on the label and you're running the department. Um, Mellencamp had outside press, but I ended up having a reasonable relationship with him. He's um, notoriously difficult. No, I... Um, I even myself, I've had some interactions, <laughs> but okay. Uh, but at that point, um, because, you know, all the corporate PR was done out of London, um, but we were being traded in New York. And Alan Levy, who came uh, over from, from Europe and was then chairman, um, said, get me PR because he needed someone in New York that could deal with some of the corporate stuff. And I trotted upstairs. And I think he made one of those decisions that I would rather have someone that knew the artists and sort of knew the mechanics of the business um, and had trade relationships. And I'll teach him, you know, the business stuff. And I mean, I, I took accounting in, in college, but... I knew nothing about sort of finance or IPOs, but at the time, Columbia had a, a month-long live-in finance for non-financial executives course, and he sent me to that. And it was such he was a, famous for sending people to courses. But it was such a great gift for me because that's where I was intimidated in the beginning and all that business stuff. I didn't know the diff, you know, I, I knew the difference between the balance sheet and the P and L, but you know how deals were, pri I mean, any of that stuff, and. Obviously, a month is not like having an MBA or a finance degree, but you know what? It's enough where you can talk to the Wall Street Journal and not feel like an idiot. Okay. When was there an interim period when you were doing both, or was oh, it all the way till the end? All the way to the end. I literally had two titles, two sets of business cards: Polygram Corpcom, Mercury, you know, artist publicity. I had two wardrobes. Because if I was in a corporate day and then I had a concert at night, you know, I wasn't going to wear a, bla you know, I need to change into my jeans. So what was your mission um, on a corporate level? Uh, on a corporate level, explain why people should buy Polygram stock, explain how um, the labels are being integrated. And Polygram did two other things that are kind of interesting that seem obvious now. They started a film company. They, you know... 15% of the company, I think, was film revenues. They bought working title films, which is still around, you know, Love Actually, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, they bought Propaganda, which mostly did music videos, but also had films, um, California, I don't remember all of them. Uh, and they bought Interscope films. Um, so you had this, you know, a truly multimedia entertainment company. Um and then they also, and now this is very obvious and commonplace, but because of Polygram's strength overseas, you know, yes, they were always trying to sell, you know, Shania Twain or Brian Adams or Bon Jovi records around the world, but they also put a huge emphasis on local repertoire. Um, you know, the Italian artist, it's never going to travel outside of Italy, but it'll sell a boatload of, of records or CDs in Italy. Um, and that was, I mean, not just from a business standpoint, but explaining to investors that that was an important okay, thing. Okay, a little bit slower. So you take the Columbia course. You're sophisticated enough to talk to um, financial press. Do you, who do you start calling? 
Well, there are not that many ones that you have, you know, you have to build a relationship with the New York Times and with the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. And, um, you know, I mean, there were random things like The Economist, but it's not like The Economist had a beat. Oh, the LA Times obviously was huge at right. that point. Chuck Phillips was right. probably the most important music business um, person. Um, you know, the trades, um, it wasn't always necessarily pitching things. It was more preparation of messaging and materials and earnings in reports e in english what is that well um by pitching i mean proactive no no the other end the the point with preparation etc oh, oh well okay you're a public company so every quarter you have to issue um a release about how your results were and then you have to explain why revenues went down and what you're projecting for the next quarter um and you know, how the company is fitting together, what your competitive advantages are. Okay. So there would be a meeting, uh, they would release it and they would have a meeting and with analysts would call in. Yeah. You have a quarterly uh, okay, analyst call. Okay. Analyst call. And then when that ended in the afternoon, you'd put out some kind of press release? No, you put out the release before. No, I guess what I'm, to, okay, yeah. I guess I didn't, you're, you're right. Would, when that ended, would you uh -huh. call the news outlets and try to spin them? Um, Usually they're calling you. They had specific questions for whatever story they're writing about it. And, you know, can you explain ABC? Um, I mean, you know, may, maybe I would have checked in. Do you have everything you need? Can I help with it? anything? Um, but you're really uh, – the Wall Street Journal – if you've written a good press release for your earnings and, you know, we had really good financial people and investor relations people – you're not going to convince the Wall Street Journal of something right. other than what they see and what, what they're looking at. You can clarify things. You can get them more information. But it's not like I'm going to go out there and all of a sudden take, you know, black and make it white. Okay. Now, I'm very familiar with uh, label publicity, which and I think most people can figure it out. Mm -hmm. But you say there are fewer outlets in corporate publicity. You talked about relationships. How do you establish and keep up those relationships? Well, I suppose it's like any kind of relationship. You treat people with respect. You're polite. Um, you return calls very quickly because they're on deadline. Um, if you don't know something, you don't try to kind of BS your way through it. But good question. Don't know. Let me check into it and I'll get back to you. And you never, ever, ever lie. Okay. But let's assume it was off cycle in between quarterly things. Would you call in, just make nice to keep the relationship oh, yeah. up? No, you have a lunch with, you know, the key people. I don't know whether it was every quarter or every right. six months. But uh, And also when there were a lot more tickets for shows, you'd invite them to shows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you're doing two jobs. Mm -hmm. Now, when someone does one job in the music business, they have no life. How are you doing? What's your life look like doing two jobs? Um, well, I did have two departments supporting me. Um, you know, when you're in your late 20s, early 30s, it, it's very glamorous. And, you you know, I wasn't married then. I didn't have kids yet. Um, so I didn't mind if I was going out five nights a week or I enjoyed going out five nights a week. And, and you know, obviously this was pre-everyone having their computer at home or certainly, you know, pre-Blackberry and, and iPhones. So you kind of, you know, when you finish with the New York Times at 6 o'clock, 
you were done till the next morning when you picked up the paper and you saw what was in there. And there was sort of a relief in that. You don't have this 24-hour cycle of, of um, you know, that, that we do now. Um, yeah. Why were, to my viewpoint, it seemed like the – let me put it this way. It seemed like the entry point at the label for women was through publicity department. Oh, yeah. Okay. And probably HR, but you never paid attention to HR, yes. Okay. Why do you think that is? (laughs) Um, I don't know whether it felt like a more female thing of, you know, you're kind of catering to people and you're the one that sets up the parties and, you know, offers the poor people a drink. I I don't know. I mean, obviously, also, you were not controlling a P&L, so you weren't on an operational. um, I guess driving here. Was this actually sexism? Were they basically saying, hey, you can do the publicity. It's publicity ghetto. But these other jobs, maybe if you prove yourself, but we're not going to let you write in. Um, I was so happy, as I think many people in my position, at least in the 90s, were to have a seat at the table and be part of this. It didn't even occur to me. I I, I mean, that... I might have been able to do something else or contribute in a different way. I just wanted to do my job in the best way. Okay, well, how about the other end of it? Uh, You're an attractive young woman working amongst a lot of high-power people. Did people abuse that relationship? Um, Did I ever have anything horrible happen to me? No. Well, Uh, horrible is a little strong. Okay. it was different times, and I, you know, I, I felt very comfortable in, in, in taking care of myself. Okay. At this point in time, do you think you have been consistent or you have a heightened awareness and you might not tolerate stuff? Oh, yeah. T- I think everyone does. I, I, I mean, I mentioned this to you before we, we, we started. Polygram every year would have a very glamorous managing directors conference. I don't know, 250, 300 people, 10 years. And we went to Seville and Berlin and Vancouver and um, Hong Kong. And, and out of 250 people, there were three women, which now that seems so bizarre to me. Three women. Um, the same three women, by the way. Um, and so – that's a heavy ratio. What was it like being one of those women? Well, we were the junior people, and we were kind of um, the favored people. Everyone wanted to sit with us because there were only three women. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so you're rocking it, Polygram. What's the next step? Uh, Polygram gets sold to Universal. <laughs> right. And that was kind of a shock because, you know, it was the biggest record company in the world. It was still very profitable. Napster had not hit yet. Right. Um, and it was quite a long time to close the deal. Well, actually, first I should say, I was on maternity leave with my second kid, and I came back early, which I now also think is stunning. You know, I had one second kid and one maternity leave, and all of a sudden it became so important to come back after nine weeks, and I obviously never got that back, and no one cared um, on the other side. It's not like anyone said, oh, look at her. She's a saint. She came in after nine weeks ahead of time. I mean, that's just not the way it worked. Um, It was about a year to close the deal. And then, I mean, they kept a lot of the label people. You know, Lior obviously stayed and actually got more, you know, when they combined Island Def Jam. Um, uh, But anyone kind of in a corporate staff level um, was out. Um, But by then, Roger Ames had been running, you know, Levy was on top of everything, including the film division, and Roger 
Ames was running 85% of the company um, that, that was mu music, recorded music and publishing. And he and I, you know, were very close. Um, and he uh, was talking to Jerry Levin and Dick Parsons about, because um, as you remember, after the whole sort of thing in the mid-90s um, with the changes in management at um, – what was it? It was Morgado to Fuchs. And then, of course, yeah, yeah. Warner was a disaster. And then they gave it to um, the film guys, um, right. Daly and Semmel. Right. Um, of course, Daly and Semmel, brilliant people, but they were on the West Coast, and Warner Music was an East Coast-based company. Um, and I think Jerry um, Levin, Levin and Dick Parsons decided um, they wanted to get a music guy based in New York, and Roger was available. Um and it took a while to sort of get the deal done. And then when he came in, he brought me in, and I started the day that the AOL Time Warner merger was announced. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Search Women Take the Mic to listen to a collection of international Women's Day episodes from iHeart's top podcasts, including Dear Chelsea, The Psychology of Your 20s, and Lip Service. It's a great way to support women and discover your new favorite show. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more and listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, a couple of things. You see the end of Polygram. Mm -hmm. Are you uptight about what you're going to do for a living? You just had another kid. I was very sad because it was a it was a very important part of my life. It was a family to me. I mean, you know, the artists, the people I worked with, and it just sort of felt like I was being torn away from kind of everything I knew, you know, in the bulk of my adulthood. Um, 
No, at that point, because the economy was good, the music industry was good. So you're the type good. of person, you're a survivor, you're gonna land, you believe you're going to land on your feet no matter what. I believe you have to figure out a way to land on your feet. Okay. So ultimately, Ames closes with uh, Warner and he brings you over. Yes. Now, this is solely as corporate publicity, right? Yeah. Well, I ended up, yes, no artist stuff, but I ended up adding things like third-party marketing and, you know. When, what when, is third-party marketing? Um, Oh, uh, how would you explain it? NASCAR wants to do music-based programming. Um, so you partner with them so that you can expose you know, gotcha. some of your artists. Gotcha. And, um, and then they also had all these committees because all of a sudden, you know, Time Warner, which was famously siloed after the AOL deal happened, they wanted to have synergy. So because there was a very small corporate staff, all of a sudden – I was the synergy marketing person, the synergy philanthropy person, the synergy advertising person, which served me very well because I think there were eight or nine divisions then. So I got to know people all across all of the Time Warner divisions. Okay, so you started on uh, Berger Day. What was it like in the office? Uh, well, people were in shock, as you can imagine. Uh, um, and... I don't think anyone from the end, I was clearly on the Time Warner side, I don't think anyone really knew what to think. Um, and, and not too long afterwards, I remember there was an investor day where, what, it would have been Steve Case, Bob Pittman, Jerry Levin, Dick Parsons, and whoever the, the Time Warner CFO was, um, and each of the division heads. It was a whole day thing. We had to prepare so this case, Roger had to give a half an hour of presentation about why people should love Warner Music. But of course, that was when Napster was starting to show. And of the eight or nine Time Warner divisions, the music division, from a business standpoint, was arguably the most troubled. Um, so this is like a big spotlight. And you had all these people jostling for position, for power. And even from the media standpoint, it was so interesting because as opposed to saying from the Wall Street Journal, this is our point person. You now had a point person who covered AOL and a point person who covered Time Warner. And you multiply that out against any sort of business outlet. Um, and, and it was a very leaky organization. Um, I, yeah, every, everyone was getting their agenda out there. So, I mean, you could kind of look whether it was the New York Post or whether it was the New York Times and figure out who was trying to say what. Um, yeah. it was. So what were some of your experiences there? You talked about 9-11 and what happened there. Okay, so I, I was at 9-11. Um, almost all of us on the senior level um, were out in L.A. We came out the, like the last flight out um, uh, on, on the 10th. Um, and it was pouring in LA, or pouring in New York, so we were delayed. You know, didn't get to the hotel till 2 in the morning. Um, Roger was out. Sylvia Rome was out. Valazzoli was out. It was the Latin Grammy Awards, and it was um, – uh, Madonna's last show of this tour so Liz Rosenberg was out um, and there was a Merrill Lynch conference so Helen Murphy the CFO was out so all of us were, were around and you know we'd all watched this on TV we were all New Yorkers going trying to find our family you know no cell phone no right. New York cell phones worked um, a, a very good friend of mine actually the woman who, who's my son's godmother lost her husband in cancer, you know, and she called me and left me a message. So I, I and I mean, she knew, because obviously all you had to do is look at the footage and she knew he worked on the top floor. Um, and so it all came crumbling down. And I think he had actually left her a message saying, y you know, um, 
I think he said a bomb went off. Um, so I'm worried about one of my best friends in the world, but I can't even talk to her because the phones aren't working. And also, as you remember, they closed um, uh, you know, any commercial flights. So what day? It was a Tuesday. And so every day we keep on thinking, because Time Warner then had a big fleet of jets. Okay, well, we'll head up to Burbank, and as soon as they open it up, fly home. And Wednesday came and went, Thursday came and went. And you remember Johnny Barbas, Of right? course. So Johnny was good friends with Whoopi Goldberg. Evidently, Whoopi Goldberg doesn't fly or doesn't fly a lot. And she had a tricked-out luxury bus. So when she used to go to New York, she had these two drivers. I think they were Vietnam vets. One would go for 10 hours and sleep. Next one would go, you know, only stopping for gas. And they could do it, I don't know, 50 hours, coast to coast. And... So we actually sat in the lobby at the Four Seasons going, are we going to wait for the planes, you know, to be able to fly? Or do we get on a bus now with the idea that in two days we'll be home? By and large, Roger and Sylvia, I remember, stayed and waited for the planes, and they did end up getting home before we did. The rest of us, um, Val, um, Liz Rosenberg, who didn't have kids, um, Helen Murphy and I decided we'd rather just be moving, you know, because otherwise right. we could be sitting there right. for another. Um, but to top it all off, the night before, I got food poisoning. So I had been up all night long. and I'm completely green. Um, and Whoopi had a nice bed. And because I was so sick, they gave me the bed. And then, Was Whoopi on the bus? Oh, no, 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 no. No, she just gave. She, okay. This was out of the goodness of her heart. Um, so Liz Rosenberg would come in and kind of, you know, pat my head down. And at night, she and I, I would say, I slept with Liz Rosenberg, you know, going across country. Um, yeah, and they had satellite TV so we could watch CNN. But there was still no real communication in right. time with, with, with New York. Um, yeah. So did the bus drop you off at your front door? No, the bus dropped Val off in New Jersey, and then the rest of us were all Manhattan, Westchester, or Connecticut. Um, so they picked a place um, in Terrytown, actually, a mall. And you know, we and they told us beforehand, so we all told you know whoever was going right. to pick us up, meet us here around this time. And so, what was it like being on the bus with these people for fifty um, hours? Well, I mean, like everyone else in America, we were all just shell shocked, and people were trying to figure it out. Um, uh, yeah, I, um, I, I mean, I had oh. been, I'd driven cross country before, so that wasn't particularly a, a novel right, thing for me. Right, but you were going that fast <laughs> without stops. Okay, what were some of the experiences there at time uh, at Warner Music? Um, what were some of the experiences? Well, what I know is that ultimately that uh, Roger was trying to do mergers. Yes, okay, so th that's right. So so when the AOL deal was announced, Roger was trying to merge Warner with EMI, right. part one. Um, so I spent the better part of a year, as did many lawyers. It's how I got to know Dick Parsons quite well, um, because the bigger issue was Brussels, not Washington, D.C. Um, European Commission. So I learned a lot about <laughs> European antitrust and you know all the things that go into it. And in the end, um, the European Commission decided that in order to approve the AOL Time Warner deal, that Time Warner would have to give up the EMI deal. Um, and as Dick Parsons will say to this day, we got the wrong deal through, right. <laughs> through Brussels. Um, 
And that, that was like a 10-month process, but it was also lovely for me because I got to know Dick quite well because by then, you know, Jerry's the CEO and Case is the chairman and Bob was running kind of all the divisions with the exception of music and film. And so, you know, Dick was a lawyer. He was, you know, had political background and he was responsible for music, um, got on very well with Roger. You know, so he spent a lot of time trying to shepherd this thing through. Um yeah, didn't happen. Um, and then at one point, I think Roger explored something with BMG before right. Sony. Um, but there were, and then when the Sony BMG thing happened, obviously it went from five majors to four, which made it that much more difficult to do another deal. And when Jeff Bukas decided, both because, what do they call it, negative growth, um, uh, to get rid of the, um, the music company, 2003, 2004, or put it up for sale because, he, you know, given how much it was declining, no real light on the horizon, all the Napster stuff, and, and um, as well as trying to pay down some of the AOL debt. Um, and that was kind of floating around for a while. Ultimately, as you know, it came down to um, EMI and, uh, and Edgar Bronfman. And in the end, I think Jeff made the decision to go with Bronfman because he didn't want to spend 10 months in Brussels trying to get through Warner EMI. But he basically gave it away, fewer than $3 billion. $2.8 billion. And now if you figure Universal, and I actually talked to a banker last night who um, validated this. If Universal with the Tencent deal is now valued at $33 billion and Warner, give or take, is about half the size. I mean, you can argue about the assets and, and, and publishing and everything. Probably worth at least $15 billion now. So in 16 years, I mean— Just by continuing to be in operation, yeah. it was worth that much. Where does that leave you when uh, it ultimately happens? Um well, Roger, you know, had made a boatload of money and decided he wanted to move back to London and there wasn't probably a seat at the table for him, at least immediately. Um, and Dick Parsons said, I really want you to stay with Time Warner. And about a week later said, you should meet Ann Moore. She's our new chairman of, of Time Inc. I think you get along with her. She wants her own communications person. And so I literally walked half a block from... 75 Rock to the Time Life building, met Anne, was hired. I, I got my payout from Warner Music, and I think a week later started at Time, Inc. Um, but it was a culture shock. I, I mean, no one in the music business ever asked me if I went to college, where I went to college, where I studied. And I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, but all of a sudden I'm on the executive floor of the Time Life building, down the hall from where Henry Luce used to sit, and I'm the only person without an Ivy League degree. <laughs> um, it, uh, again, fascinating. And I walked in, by the way, uh, at the time of the whole Scooter Libby, um, Judy Miller trial, um, which ended up the Supreme Court didn't hear it, but it went up to the court after that, which just, you know, took over everything. Um, because unlike the New York Times, because the New York Times never published it, Judy Miller, you know, w was on the hook for it. But Time Magazine, and the Washington um, uh, or the White House reporter published something about the leak, and therefore Time Magazine was also being sued. Um, and Norm Perlstein, um, who was editor in chief at the time, now editor of the LA Times, you know, absolutely brilliant, also a lawyer by training, um, you know, was really running a lot of the 
the strategy, but it was super tricky. You know, it, if the highest legal entity says you need to do something, in this case, turn over your notes, um, it's hard to say, no, I, I don't agree with you. Um, but yeah, turning over notes that are supposed to be confidential for a journalistic organization is just about the worst, you know, sin you can um, you can have. And again, this this went on for a long time while the White House reporter that was part of this whole thing, you know, had a young kid and was terrified about getting thrown in jail. In the case of Judy Miller, and I didn't know Judy at all. I mean, I sat in some meetings. The thinking was because she was behind some of the weapons of mass destruction, you know, Iraqi coverage for the Times, that she sort of wanted to, you know, make up for that. And if she was going to, you know, bite the bullet, you know, she would. Um, Ultimately, uh, I guess, right before they were going to be sentenced, and I I have no idea why they did this, um, but uh, Carl Rove's attorney said, you know, you're free to do, you know, if you need to turn it over, turn it over. Uh, And that let us off the hook. Judy, I think, did go to jail for a couple of months. Um, Very interesting stuff. So what was it like? What was your role and what was your experience in the belly of the beast? Well, um, I I mean, it got so much coverage. I mean, every day from so many different outlets. I mean, it was TV coverage. It was if there was a court hearing, you know, cameras all over, you know, and and it wasn't just the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. You know, it was Newsweek and and things like the New York Observer. Um, You know, international papers were looking at this. So it was a big deal. And you had to, fi- you know, you had to figure out based on the events of that time, that that particular day or event, what you were going to say. And you would figure it out, or you or you write yeah. it and then ask. Uh, well, Norman I worked closely with Norm and, and and the other lawyers involved. I mean, I, I certainly was not in a position to do anything unilaterally in a case that big. I would never do anything, you know, without a lawyer anyway. Okay, now it's f- ironic that that was run by Ivy League people. Mm-hmm. And that cratered when the music business went up. Mm-hmm. What was that experience for you? Well, in the beginning, remember, Time Magazine was one of the premier and one of the largest and most prestigious media companies of the 20, 20th century. Um, and even when I got there, we would still do talks with, with you know, Justice Scalia, uh, Senator Obama when he was still senator. Um, uh you know, I can remember Steve Jobs coming in, you know, to show um, people the iPhone. Um, I mean, people still cared about those titles. And I'm not just talking about time and fortune. I mean, from the entertainment side, obviously, People, Entertainment Weekly. Um, From a sports side, Sports Illustrated. I mean, you could sort of get to anyone in any area. And publishing was still relatively healthy until maybe 2007 or 8, when, you know, both consumer behavior changed, meaning getting their news from the internet, and advertisers changed, meaning, you know, advertising either on social platforms or, or the internet. Um, and I felt I felt so much deja vu because I was like, I've right. been there before. I've seen this movie. And people sometimes would look at me like, you see around corners. It's like, no, I just have kind of seen this movie before. As I say, when I would say, music business was the canary in the coal mine for digital disruption. Well, I remember at some Time Warner offsite, um, some of the film guys were basically 
you music people. And Roger was so fired up. And he's just like, you know, you just wait until those pipes are bigger and it's going to be your turn too. <laughs> so how did the people at the top, when, when and how did they wake up? What did that look like? Well, they were very smart people. Um, I, I mean, they may not have grown up in internet world. Um, uh, but I remember, um, going out to it was then the all things d conference now the recode conference with ann moore and it was almost like she got real pro i mean now all the big media people do it but at the time it was a very techie thing and she was one of the first traditional media company people to go and we you know at the time time ha had a magazine business 2.0 and the business 2.0 editor worked with her quick study i mean you know d did some q a like this and the things you know either she didn't get right the first time, she got right the second time. Um, and um, and I think the fact, you know, she kind of raised her hand and said, we want to be in business with you. And whether it's doing deals or, sh you know, sharing content, um, you know, she got real credit for that. I mean, I still remember their special edition was George Lucas, Anne Moore, and Steve Jobs. And I thought, okay, that's not bad. Okay. Did you interact with Steve Jobs when uh, Roger Ames was? Yeah, because actually um, – for the development of the iTunes store, Warner was the first company in. Right. And, and I'm, I'm not sure what the historical precedence for that was, but I went out two or three times and um, to Cupertino, just with Roger, with a lawyer, a digital guy, to talk through. And, and Roger's pitch to Jobs was, it's like the mafia families. Do not try to get all five companies to agree on things. You know, you decide what you want. We'll make the introduction to Universal. You'll have number one and two co uh, companies. Um, and that's what happened. I mean, everyone else was just goofing around. Or well, I just remember Roger around. told me, he told Universal, mm -hmm. uh, either you're in or I'm uh, resigning from the RIAA. Well, he did tell the RIAA, I am not going to be part of suing consumers for illegal downloading until we give them a legal option. Okay. But did you actually hang around jobs? Do you have any insights there? Uh, I won't say. Well, actually, after Warner Music was sold, he asked me to come out and meet the Pixar people about working for Pixar. And I only realized afterwards, you sort of start with HR, and then if you anyone can ding you, but I didn't realize that. And it's kind of, I think, a Silicon Valley thing. And if you pass with... Um, HR, you go to, I don't know, legal, and then you go to finance, and, you know, then you end up with, you know, uh, John Lasseter. And um, and then at the end of, you know, a long day, they said, you know, you should go over to Cupertino and and, um, and, and meet with Steve again. Um, now, I'm not sure that I would have been offered the job, but I, I also knew that I didn't want to move to Northern California. I mean, my family was quite young. You know, my extended family, most of them were in New York. Um, and after sort of all the tumult in my work life, um, I, I became very focused on you can't make work the center. You know, if it doesn't fit in the rest of your life, because that can go away and your rest of your life is not going to go away. Well, I guess you worked with or have experienced a lot of big personalities. Uh, what did you learn about these titans of the industry? Well, some of them had um, amazing manners. Um, uh, I mean, Dick was is just the most polite person. I mean, I could send Dick a book and I would get a personalized thank you note. I mean, from 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 the chairman. Um, 
Rogers, you know, is very blunt, but also polite in his, his um, in his own way. I'm certainly not a screamer. You know, I, I worked a lot with Chris Blackwell, both in my consulting business and when he was at Island. Um, I was so I was probably more intimidated by Chris than anyone else in the beginning at Polygram because to me he was such a legend. He signed my two favorite artists of all time, um, which are you two and who? Uh, Bob Marley, of I'm course. Just making sure. <laughs> um, and he was so cool that before one of these conferences that I told you about, where there were only three women. Golden I hadn't opened yet. It was still his personal home, even though he was building out the, um, the, the, the huts and villas. He invited the three of us down for the weekend before the conference started. <laughs> it was like, how cool is that, right? He's a cool guy. He's <laughs> the coolest. Um, no, and he's someone who, I guess, like Steve Jobs, very different personally, but he had a vision. Even if everyone else didn't agree with the vision, he was going to go with that vision. You know, it is the think different thing. Okay, so you were one on one with Steve Jobs. Uh, yeah, with the Pixar thing. Yeah, I mean, I was. Okay, probably so what was how long did that last? Was he blunt? Was he nice? Um, he was blunt and he wasn't not nice. I mean, I wouldn't say he he was warm and fuzzy. I also at that time, this would have been, I guess, two thousand three or four ish. Because I didn't come from a tech world, I didn't realize that Steve Jobs was like this. I mean, I, I knew it was a big deal. Apple was a big deal. But Apple was no, not, at the time, you know, the most valuable company in the world. Steve Jobs wasn't famous around the world that way outside of, you, you know, kind of a business and tech community. Um, so I didn't know enough to be intimidated, I guess. Okay. So how does it end with uh, time? Uh the uh, the chairman retired after 37 years, and she was an interesting story. I mean, she spent her Harvard Business School, right out of Harvard Business School, first class of women. There weren't even uh, female bathrooms when she was there. Um, gets offered 13 jobs, lowest paying one was Time Inc. And again, she liked magazines. She didn't want to be a banker. And she went there and made more money than she would have anywhere else. And she was kind of known as the launch queen. You know, she... Uh, developed in style with the idea that, um, you know, women don't just want the aspirational Vogue look. They want the practical work, and I buy it. How much does it cost? Which became incredibly successful, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Um, she launched – This is Anne Moore. Anne Moore. She la launched Real Simple, you know, the idea that the average American woman spends 20 minutes a day looking for something. If you can help them organize their life, you give them time back, which is more valuable than anything. Um, she changed people from uh, black and white to color because who wants to look at black and white Oscar dresses? Um, uh, and she had um, – uh, this was before my time, but when she was general manager of um, Sports Illustrated, and I guess this would have been late 80s, early 90s, they told her because she was a woman, she was never going to be president publisher of Sports Illustrated. Um, and Time Inc. also liked to move people around, so it wasn't the end of the world. But at that point, ESPN had just launched. She's like, we should take a piece of this because this is SI on TV. And they didn't listen to her. So she resigns. Well, she retires. I mean, retires, she was, yeah. right. Um, and then Jeff brought in a guy. Um, Jeff Bukas. Jeff Bukas, um, who was sole CEO. Dick had retired a few years before as, as Time Warner CEO. Jeff brought in a guy. Um, and, you know, Jeff's focus was never publishing. And publishing was starting to decline. So I think he just wanted – this guy was an MBA. 
You know, he went to Yale. Jeff went to Yale. They were not alike stylistically at all. Um, and as people do, this guy came in and kind of took everyone out on that senior level, um, particularly women and the only black man, I will say, at <laughs> that senior level. Um, but it was done in such a ham-fisted way that after five months, he was fired. And it wasn't a euphemism about pursuing other opportunities. It was like, no, this didn't work out. <laughs> Bad culture fit. I mean, I'm sure he got a very big check. Um, but I do give a lot of credit for Jeff that he didn't double down, you know, with more people leaving and more damage. Um, yeah. So how does it end with you? When the, okay. that new guy... Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I get, I get a, you know, like a bunch of people um, th that he wanted to replace us. I got another substantial check, um, and because I had always gone from corporate job to corporate job, and I had about a month or two of like cleaning up at, at Time Inc., and I started getting phone calls. The Harvard Business Review is run by some ex-Time guys, and they're like, you know we'd love it if you work with us for six months and we have some junior people and just kind of give us a template and organize things. And then um, the general counsel of Sony, Julie Swidler, is a good friend of mine. And um, at the time, Rob Stringer was at Columbia, and he had this – I'm sure you got it, right? The 150th anniversary of Columbia, that yeah. big, beautiful book. Yeah. And you know, it was a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Sean Wilentz, that wrote it, and – and Rob really had a vision that he didn't want this to be a promotional thing, that he wanted it to really speak to the, the legacy and the artistry of Columbia and its artists. And, you know, there was an event at the Grammy um, Museum. And so I, I worked with him uh, on that. Um, and then the best one was I got a call just from someone I knew um, that knew Ken Parks um, saying, you should go in and meet Ken Parks because Spotify is going to launch here. And the PR, the woman that ran PR in London, who's since left, but um, Angela Watts, brilliant, but she was sitting in London, and it was launching in the U.S., um, and she came back and forth a lot. And at the time, I think they didn't have headcount or couldn't afford a full-time person in the U.S., so they wanted someone essentially for the equivalent of three days a week to help them with the launch, and someone who had good U.S. media contacts and someone who understood the traditional music industry, the players, the, the business. And so before I even walk out the door, I've got these three great clients, and I, I never thought of myself as a consultant, and I always liked the idea of having a structure and office camaraderie. But this was also so interesting to me because there was nothing that I was hearing about that was more interesting than the combination of these things. And other things came in and out. When the Harvard business went away, I got pulled into Martha Stewart. Which was interesting. This um, was when Koppelman ran it? Uh, no, after that. Lisa okay. Gersh was running it at the time. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, like, I decided I liked having the variety and, 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 and the combination. And, so this is what year? 2011. Okay. And it also, and I, I don't think I, I articulated it to myself or anyone at the time, but in retrospect, it's like sometimes when these things happen, you have to figure out how to reinvent yourself. And I tried to reinvent myself from a traditional, you know, big company, traditional media person to someone kind of on this nexus of whether you want to say media or entertainment and tech, um, which was where a lot of the future was going. 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Search Women Take the Mic to listen to a collection of international Women's Day episodes from iHeart's top podcasts, including Dear Chelsea, The Psychology of Your 20s, and Lip Service. It's a great way to support women and discover your new favorite show. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more and listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At this point in time, do you troll for work or the clients find you? No, I don't really troll for work. Um, uh, you know, people, again, when Ken Parks left Spotify after, um, you know, four years later and he went to um, uh, another digital startup, Pluto TV, which is a free ad-supported service, you know, he brought me in as a consultant. Um, you know, so it's all sort of the, the relationship stuff. Um, the CSAC people hired me for a while because they wanted some help. They were doing some rebranding. and. Um, okay, but let's stop with CSAC, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you actually do? Uh, they were rebuilding their website. So some of it, too, was I was no longer just a publicist or even just a corporate communications person. It became broader in terms of, you know, branding communications and, and whether that meant materials, you know, websites, uh, one sheets whether that meant events, um, you know, figure out what was right for the client and, and, and what they needed and what they wanted. What did you do for Spotify? Um, well, for Spotify in the beginning, as I said, they didn't have anyone in the U.S. Um, and right off the bat, we had a um, big, big feature in, in Business Week. And Daniel was supposed to be on the cover. He did a photo shoot with Christina Aguilera. I went to Irving and said, this is great for her. You know, she's been on all these magazine covers. I think it was just when The Voice was launching. Um, you know, she'll look cool. This will be good for everyone. Um, 
an eight-page feature. Unfortunately, it was the week that the Murdoch um, uh, scandal broke about um, uh, taping, news of the yeah, world, the news of the world stuff. And um, Josh Terangel, who was then the, the um, top editor at Business Week, called me. He said, "I love this story. You're going to love this story." I'm sorry to tell you it's not going to be the cover anymore because we're Business Week and the business story of the week is Rupert Murdoch. Um. Okay. So at this late date, 2020, in corporate publicity, is it the same usual suspect outlets? Well, I think some have kind of fallen by the wayside and I think – Social obviously means a lot more. You have to have a social strategy and someone who un un understands that. Um, much more of a 24-7 cycle. No, I think there's a lot more blogs. There's I a guess lot more you know, influencers. I'm actually first talking about your role, okay? Because you're more on corporate publicity, mm -hmm. okay? So certainly with regular publicity, the whole game has changed. Yeah. No, okay. but I think corporate – I mean, I would count you as someone, whether you want to say influencer or – um, if I was trying to, you know, work on a story that had some kind of connection to the the music industry, if not the wider um, entertainment industry, I mean, you are the kind of person that, that I would go to because a lot of people, um, I don't know, you know, how many people um, read you, but a lot of important people read you um, and a lot of people who care a lot, maybe who care more than the people who read the New York Times. Well, let's go drill a little bit deeper. What do we know? It used to be if it was in the New York Times, everybody knew, mm -hmm. okay? As a result of the right denigrating the New York Times and as a result of so many media outlets, it's in the New York Times, a smaller percentage of people, because don't forget, that's an influencer. Yeah. New York Times is not only an influencer. I agree, yeah. So it's what the evening news is built off of. Right, exactly. <laughs> but there's no longer one outlet that can reach the country at large. Yes, the New York Times will be reach mm -hmm. everybody in Washington and mm -hmm. the people there. So how do you approach the game now? Well, I think uh, let's stick with your New York Times um, idea. You get a story in the New York Times, and even if this person, whether they're in Detroit or whether they're down the street here in Hollywood, um, you know, doesn't read the New York Times, you didn't see it. It's why you place it on your social channels or you blast out an email. Okay, but let's be very specific. If it's a business story, mm -hmm. do you say, well, you know, if I get it in New York Times, I get it Business Week, it covers my target market? Or do you actually go to socials on a business story? Oh, no, you definitely go to socials. Um, what, and, is, what is the thinking? Um, because a lot of people get their information from socials. Are those people you need to reach on a corporate level? I'm not sure that we know. It was interesting. As you know, the billboard power issue came out this week. And just scrolling through Instagram, I was surprised at how many people that were named in the power issue printed up on their feeds. If you were named in the power issue, would you put it on your feed? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I've never thought about that, and I don't think I will be named to the power issue. Um, I guess what I'm saying, do we live in an era, in the old era, you worked at Time, Inc., mm -hmm. self-publicity, self-promotion was poo-pooed. Mm -hmm. Is that completely flipped? Well, self-promotion was poo-pooed, but you had maybe at the high 15,000 employees, 3,000 journalists, journalists all have friends that are journalists. 
all of whom are very good at telling stories. So, uh, I mean, when I was at Warner Music, if the Wall Street Journal called, I don't think anyone would want to pick up the call because they would just feel like all I can do is just muck this up. You're at Time, Inc., and whatever the official line is, you had 3,000 people with varying opinions all getting out there. On background, mind you, um, but all getting out there. Okay. So let's say a corporate – when you worked with Spotify mm-hmm. – now, granted, that started 2011. Maybe that's not a good mm-hmm. example. When you work with Pluto TV, mm-hmm. did you uh, – Use socials? I didn't personally because um, they they had someone in-house. I don't know whether it was part of the marketing department that was assigned that. Uh, And I don't feel like I have a particular expertise in social. I just believe that you have to have, um, for a business or an entity, consistent messaging. You should use best practice with how often you post on various various platforms. you should have some kind of goal, whether it's you want to increase, you know, viewers or users on XYZ platform. You should focus probably on no more than two platforms. Um, uh, you know, I don't believe in trying to do Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and because Pinterest. And, um, I, I think you kind of dilute things. And I think in most most companies, there's a more natural fit Um you know, I don't know. I'm making this up. Maybe more mainstream, you would use Facebook. Maybe more insider. Okay, you, I use, use the Twitter. example. God, time flies by. It's probably 2008, maybe even a couple years later. Mm-hmm. Tom Petty had a new album. Out. Mm-hmm. Now, someone who was paying a lot of attention to media, it was in every media outlet. Mm-hmm. I mean, every. Fine. I remember, I remember you writing about that. A, I'm <laughs> offended. Okay, by the same token. The average person is not paying as much attention as I am. So is carpet bombing publicity a good thing or a bad thing? Um, Well, uh, I I don't think there's one answer to that. I think it depends on what um, the person or the project is. And I, I would say being authentic has always been important, but being authentic is more important now than ever, and people can really smell a fake. Um, and, and where's the audience that you're trying to reach or sell to? Um, and if they're not on this platform or in this outlet, I would put more energy in the places where you're going to find people, whether you're existing people or you're new people would be my philosophy. Okay, let's start from the very beginning of today. What we know is we live in a cacophonous Tower of Babel society, mm-hmm. okay? And it's a, as I believe people know more than they've ever known before because they have mm-hmm. the you know, device in their hand. But a great percentage of them don't know single things. I'll use the example of the music business. Spotify top, should be top 50. They believe everybody knows Drake's song. Everybody knows Taylor Swift songs, but never in the history of modern pop music have fewer people been familiar with the so-called hits. Mm-hmm. Okay? So how do you get a message across or you just say, I'm going to jump in the water like everybody else? I can't give you – to me, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. It, it's what's your product, service, person – artist. um, And what do you want to try to do? You want to maintain existing? You want to grow your existing? You want to get new audiences? Who are those new audiences? Where are they? Are they demographic? Are they geographic? Um, I think you need to ask yourself that. 
um, kind of every time is you're looking at where you want to put your effort. I mean, going back to your Tom Petty example, uh, I, I mean, Tom Petty only has so many hours to devote to doing media. So let's figure out what the priorities are. Well, let's use an example. I mean, I've been using this for a while, but everybody says, if we, if I kill somebody out in the street and it's the afternoon now, but let's assume it's mm-hmm. nine in the morning, that will be news till about one o'clock mm-hmm. and something else will happen thereafter. Okay. How do you keep something top of mind? Well, I think that's a problem that people have shorter attention spans Um and we've seen that even with Trump, right? I mean, you know, he tweets something outrageous when he wants to take attention away from something else. Um, uh, people go to the media or the outlets that reflect what they think um, and therefore reinforce what they're already thinking. I mean, it's it's a problem, an issue. I, I, I don't have an answer for that one. Okay. Now, there are also things that everybody will know for a day and forget about. Mm-hmm. So are you better off with a slow burn campaign or, you know, all hands on deck campaign? Well, okay, from an artist's publicity standpoint, um, certainly in the 90s, the rule of thumb was you never put anyone on David Letterman until the CD is in the store. Because if someone decides they love that song they heard last night and they go the next day to Tower Records and it isn't there, then it is out of mind. Um I think that's probably changed in a, in a streaming world where everything is so available at, at, at your fingertips. But I think it's a good thing to think about for um, it, uh, as you approach those things. I mean, yes, I guess a slow burn and being there longer or maybe figuring out how you phase things. You, you know, what's phase one, what's phase two, what's phase three? Well, that's one thing, you know, I think they're evolving, but that's what the music business doesn't understand is certainly with streaming paying Mm -hmm. forever, assuming you're being listened to. Mm -hmm. If you could wave a magic wand over the media industry, what would you want to change? Oh, my gosh, Bob. (laughs) I may have to write you back on this because I want to be very thoughtful, and I'm I'm not sure I've ever thought of waving a a magic wand, even though it is a lovely thought. I'm not going to wimp out and pass. I will write you on that. Um, well, I guess let me look at it this way. What are some of the flaws in the system that could be fixed and how would they be fixed? This isn't necessarily a flaw, but I've been thinking about this. I, I, I had lunch with a friend who's at Netflix yesterday um, and and just kind of reading some of the people like y- you um, – who you know cover the film industry and all the studios are, are so mad because you know Netflix is spending all this right. money and they're kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too and you know should Marriage Story be up for an Oscar and you know and Netflix is sitting there just laughing because they have how many millions of people you know as, as subscribers they're still growing at whatever rate and you know what times change I mean that's like the music industry in in, in two thousand saying right. This Napster thing is really unfair. Right, yeah. right, right. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and, and I think, again, even as a consumer, going to the uh, going to the movies is a hassle. Um, I couldn't you, you, agree more. You got to drive. You got to park. A lot of times, the movies I I want to see aren't playing anywhere near me. Um, the food is terrible. You watch twenty minutes of commercials. People talk or text through it. I'm going. How few movies do I want to see? And I think I saw Once a Time in Hollywood in the theater. 
And I saw Little Women because I wanted to go with my daughter, and I figured that was a right. good holiday movie, and it got good reviews. Everything else, it's like, why not wait? Or why not watch what's on Netflix tonight? Or, I mean, I think this is going to be very fascinating for people watching the next year, and it's slightly off topic. But you have Netflix that's so entrenched. You have Disney, which anyone with a kid under 10 is right. going to spend ten, 7 bucks a month. You have Apple that can bundle this, you know, whether it's with music or, or um, well, now or they're the giving magazines. away free with a, any well, device. Yeah, yeah, or or free, but in any case, they, 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 you know, they can use this as a loss leader or marketing thing, um, you know, for a long time. And so, the, I'm fascinated. Uh, you know, the Comcast is taking a different approach. Obviously, you know, free, 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 and and back to the Pluto TV. There's enough people that want free, and we've got you know the Office, and we'll have sports and late night TV. Um, so free is sort of set aside because it, okay. it, it, it's a different um, different model. Uh, I, I never subscribed to Hulu, and I'm sure it's great for people who like those shows. But I, I think most people agree there's a window of how many of these services you're going to do. Again, I look at my former company, and I never worked for HBO, but I mean, I was a huge Richard Plepler fan, and I think that it was one of the great brands, companies, you know, of, of the last 20 years and what they've created. And I don't know about you. I'm really confused. Okay. HBO, HBO Now, HBO Go, HBO Max. I couldn't agree more, and um, I'm paying. And, and I, you know, I still get tradition, you know, cable TV, so I get HBO. But does that mean I can get HBO Max? You know, well, and, and I, you know I I, as I say, I remember I don't use my iPad that much, but I was out of town on the mm -hmm. iPad. And, you know, is it HBO Go or HBO Max? And they're or both HBO on, Now. Exactly. I mean, they were, all the icons were on, you know, mm -hmm. all the apps were there, and I'm wasting time yeah. trying to figure out which one works. Yeah. And, they, and you have to go through, jump through hoops under the best of circumstances mm -hmm. just to get it to play. Yeah. But, okay, I'm not sure the point you're making. Oh, well, just that the, the things change and, it, you know what we talked about. The music was the canary in the coal mine, but you look at all these other forms of media and you have to adapt to change, whether it's a person like me or whether it's an industry and you can't sort of look back and say the good old days and I want to okay, come let's, back to the Okay, let's drill days. down a little bit. So you were with this person from the film business yesterday. Mm -hmm. Could you wake them up or are they just too far in no, their No, no, she's at Netflix. So, she's so, at Netflix. Oh, oh yeah, so she's okay. on the winning side. Okay, <laughs> so if you were with the on the movie people, mm -hmm. what would you tell them to do? Um, embrace change and mitigate your losses. There will be losses, whether it's losses forever or losses short term, but you're not going to turn back time. So okay. figure it out. So you're a corporate uh, publicity person, consultant. Has that world grown or shrunk? Well, I'm not that deep in Silicon Valley, but my, you know, sort of touching it, my feeling is that a lot of them, when they start out, use PR as a marketing tool as opposed to spending. It's not like they have big advertising campaigns right, right. or anything. Um, so I, I, I think in that segment there, also, I think a lot of people are concerned about overhead. You know, if you hire me, you're not paying for my health insurance. You're not paying for my office space, you know, or any of the other things. And so I, you, you get my brains, my ideas, you know, my contacts, um, obviously not full time um, as a consultant, unless it's agreed upon, uh, you know, on a project basis. Um, 
And maybe that's all you need. I mean, in a number of cases, I've come in where they say, we love the person we have, but she's 25 years old, and right. we need someone to give him or her some guidance. Okay. So it's like the rest of the world, we're moving to an outsourcing uh, gig economy? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. I mean, personally, I think uh, I, I'm not sure that we're moving completely, and I think there will always be a place for in-house in people, certainly at least in big companies. Um, but I think this feels more. Um, this feels easier, especially for startups and smaller companies. It's okay. Easy to you're bite running off. your own business. Mm -hmm. You're not. You make a deal with someone to be a consultant. It's not full time. Mm -hmm. How do you manage the compensation and time you dedicate? Well. I Before I take on a project or an account, I try to understand what are your goals. In a best-case scenario, if we're sitting here three months from now or six months from now, and if they tell me I want to be on the cover of Fortune, I want a 10-minute segment on the t Today Show, and, and it's something that I think that's completely unrealistic, I think, you know, you're not going to be happy at the end of this period. I'm not going to be happy because I'll feel like I'm not delivering for you. Um, but if you can sort of start by saying – what are the goals? And even if the person can articulate the goals, working with them to say, okay, so do we need to change your website? Get your messaging in shape. Do we need to do any media training? Are there conferences we should be at? You know, speaking opportunities. What media outlets are you most interested in? Where do you want to build your relationships? Come to an agreement there. And then the next part is both for me to figure out does this look like a two-day-a-week project? I mean, the equivalent of two days. Uh, you know, if I wake up at 6 in the morning, which is you saw this morning, you know, that, that counts to a two. And you can, you can kind of work from anywhere at any time. Um, but I try to figure out, is it, is it a two-day project, three-day project, you know, and agree. I don't like to do stuff really under six months because it just takes a while to get into the rhythm of understanding the people and the business and kind of coming up with ideas and a lot of it's sitting around and bouncing things off of each other. Okay, right? so let's assume it's two days a week. Uh-huh. But the person calls you five days a week and you've already put in 15 hours. Okay, well, the, 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 okay, then I, I should have added. The other thing I say is when we come to an agreement about a price and uh, two days a week, I said, let's reexamine this after a month or two months. And if I feel like I'm putting more into it, I, I'd like to come back and talk to you about renegotiating. In turn, if I feel like... Either you're in a slow period or there isn't a whole lot I can do until the summer. Y you know, you can come back. This should not be et etched in stone. I mean, I'm pretty Okay, so let's way. assume the company is realistic. Mm -hmm. And they come to you and they say, well, in the next three months, even though it's a six-month mm -hmm. deal, I want to be on the cover of Fortune and I want to be on uh, some news program. Can you deliver that? It depends who the person is. No, no, different. let's just assume oh. – do you have those relationships? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you have those. So basically any media outlet, you have somebody there that you can pitch. I can't tell you any media outlet. And some of the TV stuff, um, I probably don't, but I know someone that can introduce me. Okay. What is the number one, for a business story, the number one TV outlet? Well, CNBC, you know, means a lot to people. Um you know, I'll tell you, and this is a little bit of, of um, people miss this, you know, one of the only successful parts of Yahoo is Yahoo Finance. Right. And they get 18 million uniques a month. Andy Serwer, the guy who runs it, used to run Fortune. And he's built this great, great 
business within Yahoo, and they now do like six hours of video a day. And I've had people on there. And because so many people still go to Yahoo, you know, for stock information or whatever, there's a lot of good feedback. I'm not saying that's necessarily num- number one, but it's, um, you know, it's also finding things like that. So if they have that much video a day, mm-hmm. how hard is it to, to get something on? You know, sometimes I've told yes, sometimes I've told no. Okay. Well, if you're told no, will you go back? Uh, if I can make the story better. Okay. And then print, what is the uh, the best place? Well, a lot of people still care a lot. Of, uh, if they have any international footprint, the FT is sort of the gold standard. Financial Times. Financial Times. And then, um, you know, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal still count a lot. I mean, I always tell everyone, I think the New York Post is super important because a lot of people, at least in New York, read it. Absolutely. Um, Howard and, Stern is talking about it there all the time. I mean, Dick Parsons, when he would get picked up, he'd always tell me, yeah, the Times, the Journal, and the Post, because the Post is where you get your finger on what people are talking about. Um, and they have a good business section. Again, held to a different standard and following somewhat different stories, but they're smart people and good reporters. So what is the future of print? I think the New York Times, let's stick with our favorite, the New York Times. I think they've shown that they've figured out a reasonable digital model. Um, I mean, I don't know all the numbers, but they're growing both in terms of numbers and in terms of revenue. I think the big will get bigger and the small, sadly, will probably fade away. Well, let's put it this way. I'm a voracious news consumer. Mm -hmm. I get the physical newspapers. Mm -hmm. I do too. And I pour over them. But I'm checking the apps innumerable mm-hmm. times a day and you cannot get into the depth on the app and you miss things on the app that you will see That's in exactly print. what i tell people you know if they look at me like i'm you know a luddite for still getting the um the print issues i say there's a sense of serendipity of things that i don't even know that i'm exactly. looking for if i'm turning every page and i do i read those three papers every day and the financial times on the weekend um and I think that, you know, I mean, sometimes I look at different magazines. Obviously, sometimes I dive in if I see something online that interests me. Um, but I think you can kind of cover a lot of important stuff if you deal with those. Well, I guess I'm going the other way. When print goes away, if you get a story on the app and it's buried, will anybody see it? I mean, there are well, big yeah, stories. Yeah, I, like, I, don't th- I guess what I'm saying is uh, – in 2050, will the New York Times have a print edition? No, but maybe they will figure out a different way of presenting of the news. presenting it so that for people like us, you get more of the you know serendipitous dis- discovery. Um, I don't. I think the New York Times is, it has even said it's print is not going away for us. You know, in the near term. Okay. What about Apple News Plus? Um, Apple News Plus, uh, I love as a consumer because I'm not sure I want to pay $100 for The Hollywood Reporter or for Business Week, but I like being – and when I was, you know, I would find they were just stacking up, and then I go, oh, this is too much work to go through this. Um, But I love having the access to it, either if there's a certain story I'm following or you can enter something, you know, you want to go back and read what they said about, you know, Rupert Murdoch here – just type it in. You know, you get the last seven years of archives, which I think is a great gift. The question I think for Apple News is how do the content providers feel and are they getting 
um, compensated to the degree that they feel they should. Well, one thing I don't is, know enough. One thing for sure is uh, subscriptions are amazingly low, and mm-hmm. they were all front-loaded. Yeah. Uh, but I'm interested. Do you check Apple News Plus on any specific device? Uh, usually my iPad, yeah. Yeah, because I say I'm – on my phone a lot, and you know, News Plus doesn't work that much. No, no, I, I don't like anything I have to read. I don't, I don't like right. on my phone. Um, I, I like the bigger screen. So, what's the future for you personally? The future of my media consumption or yeah, media career? <laughs> career? Uh, I'm not sure I ever plotted out my future, and I'm not sure that I am now. I, I, I feel very lucky that I've had the experiences and met the people that I have, and. Um, you know, I told you I've got a 24-year-old and a 22-year-old, so I feel, you know, not only do I love them, but I got two great kids out of two great colleges, both working. Um, I like the flexibility, too, of traveling. I mean, this summer, my daughter and I wanted to go to Croatia. We went to Croatia. You know, my son turns 25 next year. He wants to go to Japan. We'll go to Japan. I mean, that, to me, is a gift because I didn't have that flexibility for a long time. I did a lot of traveling, both for work and for fun, but it wasn't just like, okay, Let's go now. And I can. Okay. You have a client. You go mm-hmm. to Croatia. What do you tell them? Um, I- I'm going to be gone. I'll check okay. my email once a day. Once a day. Mm-hmm. Maybe more. Okay. So you feel fulfilled. Very much so. Okay, Dawn, this has been great. Thanks so much for talking Thank to me. Thank you for having me. Okay. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsex. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.